Hi, everybody. My name is Garrett Hoddle with Podcast Architects. Today, I am joined with Dr. Cody Perry, who is the assistant professor in the College of Education with Texas A&M International University. And I am also joined today with Dr. Adriana Vela, mm -hmm. who is a district principal with the United Independent School District here in Laredo. Mm -hmm. Both of those titles, I think they're pretty straightforward, but help me explain to somebody sitting at home or watching this what you guys do. Dr. Perry. Uh, so essentially, um, anybody that wants to become a teacher in the state of Texas um, comes through our program, and I teach many different courses, but my two main ones are assessment for instructional design, so actually using um, the data that they get from the assessments to you know, tailor their instruction and help students prepare for the future. And my specialty, though, is the math course, um, elementary mathematics, and getting teachers prepared to teach math. You're pre you prepare the next teachers of the future. That's correct. And Dr. Vela, we've talked to, I've talked with some people from Laredo ISD. You're the first person I think I've been able to talk to from United awesome. Independent School District. Tell me a little bit about what you do. Well, I'm a school principal. I'm currently a very proud principal of uh, Colonel Santos Benavides Elementary School. Um, we have pre-kinder through fifth grade students, and as a principal, I do so much. <laughs> um, but <laughs> the primary goal is leading our scholars to success um, academically and after COVID, um, socially as well. We, we've been dealing a lot with, with social issues and academic issues. Um, and as part of, of my, uh, as a principal, I welcome uh, student teachers all the time from TAMIU. I like to prepare them for the future, not just for my campus, but for the campus at UISD, um, to prepare them for the real, you know, for the real world of teaching in uh, today's society, especially along the border. The real world, real society, we're talking about the teachers of the future. And the, there's a couple different things that I'm going to have to make sure to hit. I want to start with the first one, Dr. Perry. How are you using data to analyze candidate performance and as well evaluate the effectiveness of your candidate support? And I hope that makes sense. It does, yeah. Okay. Um, so I actually get teased often for the <laughs> amount of data that I – um, utilize. You said math and was your specialty. So. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, of course, it's not only quantitative, you know, the numbers. We also have qualitative data that we use. Sure. Um, but for me, I think there's there's a big, you know, people throw the word data around, but um, it's important to know the difference between the data and then analyzing that and the statistics behind it. And so I always tell my students, data is like um, an anagram or, you know, like a jumbled up word. You, you see the letters, you know there's something there, but it's just letters. What's behind, right, what right. is it? Yeah. And so it's the statistics and the analysis. So in qualitative, when you're doing like interviews or, um, you know, um, focus groups or something, you code that and you look for themes that, you know, the commonalities. Um, and in, in the quantif the you know mathematical side of it, we're looking at all these different variables and, and what leads to what. And it's not until you do those things that the data actually tell a story. And so that's where the letters and everything come together to actually you know make the anagram into the word you're looking for. And so when you start analyzing that data, that's when you get 
the real story behind that. And so at one point I spent quite a bit of time analyzing about 400 different students' test scores and did that to find out, you know, what's the optimal study time and those kinds of things. And then I tailor my courses specifically to some of their weaker areas because they're going to go out into the classroom. If they are weak in probability, they need to improve that. And so I really tailor my class to that. And then I have about every two weeks a study session where they can come in for extra math help. And then I usually have one or two students that are really struggling that come to me for extra help and I do a deep dive into their data. And like I just had one that passed her state exam last week and the previous semester I had a student when she started, she was at 40% correct, worked with her over that semester and she actually got a perfect score on her state. Of course, it's them doing all the work. I just give them the tools to get there um, and show them how math is really about um, learning from your mistakes. Well, that sounds yeah. fascinating. Also, the metaphor you, you used about like how it's like an anagram, studying both at a huge level, 400 people and finding the story, what is the data telling me here, but also you're doing it on a specific level. Exactly. Hey, what's happening with you here? Uh, evaluating data, evaluating people. Dr. Vela, kind of on that point, I want to mm -hmm. turn to you. How does your district establish and reaffirm inter-rater reliability among all certified evaluators? Well, there's a, there's a huge process to follow. And, of course, I'm going to delve into what we do at our campus. Help me out. I'd love to hear. For sure. Um, we have a program in Texas called TPES that we have to follow. Um, we get certified in it as administrators as far as evaluating teachers and, and how they are performing in the classroom. Um, data is a big part of it. Um, we do, the, the data I think drives us and what we're supposed to be seeing the teachers hitting. There's domains that you have to follow and, and under the domains there's dimensions, like specific dimensions of how the teachers should be teaching. And as a principal, and I can tell you, I've, I've been very lucky and very blessed that I've been in the same campus for, I guess, 17 years as an administrator. Now I'm the principal. I used to be an assistant principal there. Um, so I really know my school community. I really know my teachers. Last year was the year we just, we just came back from COVID and learning online. And our school did extremely well. Uh, academically speaking in third, fourth, and fifth in reading, math, and science in fifth grade. And um, we were actually the number one performing school with the same demographics in the state of Texas. We That's were, incredible. We were at a 98% um, passing, or, or and the one, the, the school next to us was actually at a 94. You're talking about Austin, Dallas, Houston, uh, different places. And so... Um, we're doing, and I'm not, just, I'm not saying it because of our campus, but I'm saying it because of our district. Um, we have extremely good leadership, and um, UISD in itself, I think, is one of the top five producing districts in, in the state. Um, and oftentimes, we, we, I get calls from different cities, what are you doing, you know, what's going on in your campus, especially because we are along the South Texas border. Mm -hmm. um, and I have but one answer. And it's the expectations are the same. 
The expectations are the same for my students. It doesn't matter if uh, the goal of all bilingual education is English. So um, in talking about integrator reliability, I think it's a culture that I have established in my campus of knowing the data, but not only uh, knowing the data, making sure that I teach my teachers how to see the data in a simplistic fashion that is honed in to just results, like knowing exactly what we have to do. And it needs to be grade level specific, and then from there it goes to, to teacher specific. However, because I think we're such a well-oiled machine, all of my teachers are teaching what they're supposed to because we're following our TPES, which is the, the inter that's how we, we make sure that everybody is, is doing what they're supposed to. My teachers can tell you uh, one of the things that, that, that we do or that I do is every week I'll focus on two dimensions on the TPES. So if we're doing achieving expectations, you know, I tell them, you, uh, this is what we need to see. These are examples of what I need to see in the classroom. These are examples of what I need to see the students answering. Um, uh, or uh, the, the regurgitation of what they're, they're learning, and not just at one level, but how are we going to push it to that higher level. All of my first grade teachers know exactly what needs to be learned you know that week and and that and they, they they're so proud of teaching us like at that higher level and and having the teachers the students go at that at that higher level of learning and as far as my assistant principals and myself in my campus is that culture of at the beginning of the year we go together and then we look at teachers we look at a rubric that we have to follow in TPIS we come back together and then we have a discussion, pretty much like we're having now. Mm -hmm. How did you rate that teacher and why? Why? How did you rate that teacher? And then I, I'll tell them. And it's gotten, you know, it, it's been it's been steps to get there. But I think we're all in tandem, and like we move, we we move around in the same level. So our our teachers know exactly what what I want to see, what my assistant principals want to see, and they deliver. And and the the students all but benefit from that. Yeah, kind of like what you start off saying, expectations are the same. Mm -hmm. Expectations are the same. And I mean, the stories of school success, I think you were kind of hesitant. You said, I don't want to, I don't want to be boastful. People need to hear those. That's mm -hmm. incre incredible, the success that you guys have had. And it, it sounds like data plays such an important role in what both of you guys do. I have another question here for you, Dr. Perry. What is the scope and sequence of inquiry cycles to gauge candidate performance? So, I mean, when a lot, you know, we use the the T-tests, mm -hmm. which is, the you know, the framework for what they'll eventually do in there. Um and so I really try to incorporate, like just yesterday in class, I do my final words of wisdom, which is all the things that I wish they would have told me while I was in school to become a teacher. Because I taught middle school, I taught fourth and fifth grade. Um, I was a sub and my very first sub job was in kindergarten. So I've kind of been, um, you know, there. And so when they go out into the field and, and they're working out there, um, one of my biggest things for them and I usually incorporate this into the assessment class um, because we know that new teachers often struggle with classroom management. Mm -hmm. And but I mean they're you know 22 years old, you know there's a lot of things that they haven't necessarily gone through yet. And so you know I tell them that 
when they get out there and they start working in the school district that they need to, we're not even working yet, they're just out there observing that, yes, they're there to, you know, do what their teacher wants them to do and all those things, but to really be a student of what goes on in there. And so I tell them, you know, you're not only paying attention to the lessons, but what, how do the students respond? If they are doing like vocabulary and they just sit down and write it 15 times like I had to in school, how do they respond to that? Do, you know, is the behavior in those things harder to, to deal with? And so I always tell them, you know, my biggest thing is don't just do something because everybody else is doing it or because it's always been done. And so, for example, like you'll see a lot of schools that, or a lot of teachers anyway, that use the clip chart or little cards where when a student's behaving really well, they're on green. And when they maybe mess up once or twice, they get moved to yellow and then red. And so I do, I have to kind of read from this. because yeah, Go ahead, go ahead. Um, I know exactly what you're talking and about. I, and I told them, you know, like when you go into the classroom, that teacher might use it really effectively. But just because something appears to be effective, unless you really get to know your students and know what's going on, you may not see the whole picture. And so this was actually a teacher that, posted this she had taught for years and then finally she had her own child and he came home in kindergarten she said I remember my own son coming home from kindergarten day after day in tears because he just couldn't seem to stay on green he wanted so badly to behave he wanted to please his teachers he wanted mom and dad to be proud of him but his impulsivity did not allow him to keep himself in check for the whole school day uh, every time his clip was moved he was being reminded that he wasn't good enough. And it's utterly heartbreaking to hear your child say things like, I hate myself, why can't I be good? My teacher hates me, I'm just not good enough. And then she writes, as I'm writing this, tears are dropping on the keyboard as I remember those moments. And so for me, the scope, I mean, this, you know, the sequence, all of those, the scope is much larger than what a lot of people realize. Um, and obviously the data and all of that is important, but it's also about getting to know your students, understanding some of the challenges that they have to go through, um, and, you know, tailoring your classroom for those kids. Mm -hmm. That That's really in-depth, especially that's something that you would include and in, say, like you were mentioning your final words of wisdom. Yep. Wow. Um, I, I have one question here for you that I also have to hit. In your specific role within the educator preparation program, how do you use teacher candidates' data for program planning and impact? Um, so we talk, in my assessment class, we talk a lot about different theorists and the potential application of those theorists. Um, so, for you know, one of the big ones that people are, they get really pumped up about is um, Howard Gardner and theory of multiple intelligences. Essentially, it's you, this idea that we all have these different talents and things like that. Um, but I share with them his own words that um, it was never meant as learning styles. It's more of the way that we would express ourselves. Um, and so, you know, from, from the actual research data, like from him, um, to try and show that it's not necessarily you have to teach eight different ways. It's that sometimes a student might feel more comfortable doing a podcast as part of their uh, assessment to show what they learned rather than always doing an essay or something like that. Um, 
and of course in, in math I use all that data from from their pretest that when we have them coming in and I use as many real-world examples as possible um, for instance I mean very few people understand like they they know the Pythagorean theorem they can write it out they can even maybe solve some questions but the minute you ask them well when would you use this and why do we use it you just it's blank and so you know I use that to you know I know that because of looking at that data and so then I show them the you know the proof using three squares and you put the three squares together and in the middle there's a nice right triangle um, and then I show them how you know if you're doing construction you don't even know if your square is truly square the only way to make sure a corner is actually square is to do it mathematically with the Pythagorean theorem. You know, so I try to give them all that real world stuff because the biggest thing for me, or one of the biggest things is they're gonna ask that question, their students are gonna ask, well, when am I ever gonna use this? We've all asked that at some point in, in math and it's hard to come up with it on the fly, but if you know it ahead of time, and if they can see a real world application, they're gonna be more likely to pay a little more attention. Um, but then I also take, I just had a, the student that took her state exam last week, I started really breaking it down and I looked at, um, you know, how many questions she needed. She only needed five more questions to pass. And one competency, she had missed six questions. So instead of studying all five competencies, I helped her sh see that if you just study this one, you're gonna pick up those six and you're gonna pass. Of course, I also tell them, you have to keep at it because you want to master all those competencies, but for passing the test and getting to that next part, focus here and you really, you know, narrow it down. And then even like this week, it's finals week, I share data with them about cramming versus spaced practice and study. Um, because most people, you know, cram, um, or a lot of people do. And cramming for five hours you will remember about 37% of what you crammed. Mm. And that might help you, you know, put you over the top on that exam, but three months later, you only remember 1%. As teachers, they can't remember 1%. I mean, they, they have to remember more than 1%. They have to remember more than 37. So if you do it five hours spread out over five days, one hour a day, you remember 90%. Three months later, you still remember 76% of it. And so I try to get them to really study that spread out, which alleviates their stress and anxiety, but is also going to make them better teachers in the future. I think it's interesting how you guys both get to see both sides of the coin, mm -hmm. teaching and what it's like being a student mm -hmm. at a, several different levels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Bailey, you were kind of talking about this a little bit before, but how has teaching and being a student um, in your capacity mm -hmm. changed, say, over the past 10 maybe 15 years? Oh, tremendously. So maybe it's been about six years ago. Um, I, I was going to say five, but no. It's been like about six years ago that the curriculum in Texas changed and it became more rigorous in um, ELAR, which is English Language Arts and Reading. Now it's put together. Um, and in mathematics as well. Um, I remember teach, having some stories in third grade that are now taught in the first grade, like at the end of the semester or at the end of the year in first. So that shows you that it's about a couple of years ahead. So uh, the paradigm shift in teaching had to change 
and and we have to make sure that we're teaching our students at not you know yes they're six years old but we know that the vocabulary that they're that they're ha that they're needed to learn is really at a third grade level. So we, we what we do on, on a daily basis, and what we've I think we've perfected this, and we continue to perfect this, is a lot about what you're saying, the way you teach your students at the college level. That's how we teach our students at the elementary level, um, and that's how I teach the teachers to decipher the the data so that they can meet the needs of our students. So if we have a, a benchmark and we have um, a teaks that we, we see the trend, you know, as a first grade level that they are missing, and, and I, I, say, I started with vocabulary because that's big. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's one of the biggest problems that we have. Um, but I like to call it also one of our biggest assets because a lot of our students are multilingual, not just, you know, Spanish to English, but we have students from, you, you, Laredo is changing. So we have students from everywhere. <laughs> and we use that uh, to our advantage to catapult our English vocabulary to another level, having all this background knowledge, prior knowledge. And, and we teach our students that way. And we teach <coughs> our student teachers to teach that way. And, and that's why I love embracing them and having them in my campus. Because we really do, I, I really, I take a lot of pride in teaching them the way I would want them to teach at Colonel Santos if I were to be hiring them. And um, most of the principals are my friends and my colleagues, so I take a lot of pride in telling them, you know what, the student teacher was amazing. You know, if you have an opportunity, uh, give her a call. Um, and it goes back to, you know, having higher expectations for the students, not just the expectations, but higher, because every year, the expectations of the state are getting higher. Um, we need to prepare them to, for middle school. We need to prepare them for high school and evidently, you know, to go to college. And um, that has tremendously changed. When COVID came and interrupted our, our learning, um, it, it was very difficult. And I've never said this out loud. This is the first time I'm going to say this out loud. The state's expectations of learning did not change but the way our children came back tremendously changed um, I'm gonna tell you that last year was the first time we got our students back um, after being home for a year and a half and they were sitting down in their desk they didn't even know how to sit down properly they were taking off their shoes you know, they couldn't even, and, and this, they're coming from beautiful families. It has absolutely nothing to do with uh, their home environment. It has to do with a lot of our parents having to work from home and having to grapple with them having to learn how to work from home and having a child that's also learning from home and, um, you know, not being able to do both because you can't. You know, it's it's very difficult. And teaching, like retraining a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old's brain that, no, we don't take off our shoes when we're learning. We do that at home, but not in the classroom. And I'm going to tell you that it took about a month or two to be able to get them to a level of independence where 
they are sitting on their desk, they can take out their pencils, they have two pencils, they can open their book to page 20 and have their paper ready or their Chromebook ready, ready to work. It took a very long time and they would cry like it used to be only pre-kindergartners and kindergarten and this is me that has been there for years and ha has been in education for many years awed by what I was seeing and and hoping I, I really want to write a book about this of how much being educated at home was very detrimental to uh, the social aspect of, of, of our students. There are some students that are still learning from home and they're wonderful, but it takes a lot of hands-on from the parents mm -hmm. to be able to teach them that structure. And sometimes we can't, you know, I, I had to work from home too, and I had to manage that myself. Um, so we've come a very long way. I, I know that I can tell you right now that we, we've closed the gaps in learning for our students. They're, they're back to, to where they need to be. Um, but come back this year and with my kindergartners, my pre-kinder students, and even some of my first grade students who didn't go to kindergarten because it's not mandated by the state. So a lot of the parents didn't bring them until first. Um, we had to go through this all over again, you know, with a big, especially most of my kinder students. But I can tell you, looking at the data, I only have three students who haven't met their mark from 150 students. Mm -hmm. So I'm very proud of them. But it's taken a lot of work. But the demands of the state, the TEKS are the same. The expectations are the same. No matter where, what elementary school in Texas you are, I, I take my job with a lot of pride and I need to teach my kids what every t student in Texas is learning. And um, so we had to be doing this in tandem, like the behavior, the, yeah. when he was talking about, um, I came up with a new method for that green, <laughs> for having a student earn that, that green mark that he was talking about. It's, it's like, we need to talk after, after this probably all day, but um, I learned to do an AM and a PM behavior chart so that they can feel some sort of, of uh, we all need to feel like we accomplished something. Mm -hmm. So when they when they can't reach it in the morning, you still have the afternoon. It's worked like a charm, and our kids are doing amazing. So you just have to just change your way of thinking and how you're going to implement these behavior plans. But um, again, it's uh, you know spiraling everything they should have learned the year before and doing it at the same time with everything they need to learn this year and what they need to learn next year. And I think at Colonel, we've been able to, to uh, manage our time to do that. And our poor babies, they don't have a minute rest until they have recess. You kind of answered the last uh, one of the last topics that I wanted to get into there, but you mentioned it. With COVID, we lost a you know that year. Whether you were a teacher or a student at the university level mm -hmm. or you know at an elementary school, mm -hmm. and both of you guys look at data mm -hmm. on a bunch of different levels. Is there anything today that maybe stands out to you at some of the data you're looking at both of your capacities? And I know you kind of mentioned some of it there, Dr. Vela, Dr. Perry. I know that's kind of a broad question as well. Well, um, it's actually one of my honor students is work, did a research project that her and I will be finishing up this summer. Um, and she actually looked at, spoke with some of our faculty about some of the things. And the things that just, you know, really stand out to me are um, some of those interpersonal 
communication types of things that people struggle with. Um, and of course, things have definitely changed, but at the same time, hu you know, our human nature um, is, doesn't change as much as we would like to believe. Um, in class the other day, I gave him some quotes um, and asked them basically, you know, what was this quote referring to? And one of them was essentially, kids are out of control, they don't listen to their parents, they do what they want. And of course, that you know, they're saying, well, it's coming back from COVID or the internet. Um, and it was Socrates at the advent of writing and parchment. Like writing was gonna destroy our minds because we would never remember and think about things. Um, and another one was about this digital overload is gonna kill our kids. And that was 1500s when the printing press became a thing. And it was interesting, just uh, last year, two years ago, I was coming back from Colorado, I went to see family, and I saw a little antique store. I love stopping at antique stores, and I found a math book from 1950, no, 1963. And I start, you know, I open it up, flipping it through, wanting to see how much, how different was it. There was partial products. There was putting fractions on a number. Everything that we do now looked no different than it did really? then, yeah. And so you hear people say, you know, well, I don't, I never learned it that way. <laughs> well, you were in second grade. We don't really remember a whole lot from second grade. A lot of the, you know, you just, you remember the end point, mm -hmm. the strategy that you use, but all the stuff that the teacher used to get you there, you don't necessarily remember. Mm -hmm. And I always try to tell my students that, you know, every generation looks at the next one, like, oh, this is the end. And but it's, it's really not the case. Like in the 60s, they um, protested, kids protest now. Um, and with the data and trying to use those real world connections, um, somebody just mentioned the other day that their grandma, or grandpa, somebody said something along the lines of teens are out of control, they're just out there doing whatever they want. Um, and actually last year, teen pregnancy rate was 15 for every thousand. So there are 15 births per thousand. And 1957 was the highest at 96 births per thousand. So <laughs> the data kind of helps us kind of put everything into context and into perspective. And so I tell my students, like, don't let it bother you. Like, they're just trying to share their wisdom with you. Yes, sir. But at the same time, like, you know, the technology and things have changed. But as human beings, maybe not so much. Mm -hmm. and, and I can add to that. Um, with technology certainly has changed at the elementary level. Our students are extremely more savvy, but we can't fight that. We need to work with that. And um, we definitely do. And, and we it's, again, changing the, the mindset of the, of the teachers and saying, okay, we're, we can't fight against it. We need to work with it. That means you need to teach faster and better because kids now with technology, they get everything in an instant. They get, you know, so it's scaling back and teaching the students how to think and how to, so the way, one of the, re, one of the ways we do that is, okay, research first. Go in, research, you have two to three minutes, collect your thoughts, and then answer. So that's how we're, like, trying to teach our scholars to be scholars because they want to answer, like, right away without going, because they read and they see and they, you know, everything is, like, right in front of them. And it's teaching them to scale back and to think, 
but embrace technology. And, and I love technology. We, we embrace it, too, as, as educators. I'm going to tell you, um, in kindergarten, we had a student that um, the teacher turned around to help another student and then turns around, the student has the Chromebook and says, okay, Grandma, I'll call you later. And turns out he was Skyping his grandmother <laughs> in a kindergarten class. And the, the teacher comes like, oh, my God, such and such students, you know, was Skyping grandma. And I said, okay, so let's talk to him. And she goes, don't worry, Dr. Vela, we have a plan. Since he's so savvy with the computer, he's teaching all the other kids how to uh, log in and how to go into this program. I said, okay, we got it. And that's, I use that as an example to all of my teachers, how let's not let that you know, overpower us as adults and make sure that we're still the adults where they're teaching our children and we just have to gear them on properly how to use technology for their learning. And that we, I think we've come a long way from last year, the beginning of last year to now, to where everybody feels comfortable with, with technology and the teachers feel comfortable teaching with technology and integrating it. So, um, working with vocabulary and working with and how we have to teach our students to express themselves socially because that was a big issue we use um it's i'm sure you have different things at the higher level but we have flip grids where we teach our students okay you're going to answer this question you're going to verbalize it um but you need to think you know you need to stop and think a little bit before you speak research do your notes uh, you know before before you answer and it's our, our scholars do that they really are true scholars in the sense of the word i don't care if they're five or my oldest ones that are 11. they are they're good with technology they have embraced it do we have mishaps along the way where they're seeing things they're not supposed to of course but we just deal with those as they come we don't let those be the premise of oh, technology's bad, you know, it's taken over. We can't do that because we can't, we, we need to embrace it and we need to work with, with them because when I tell my parents when they complain, um, yes, we do teach them how to hold a pencil. Yes, they do learn how to write because we, we do have to uh, methodically plan how we're going to teach everything. Um, but at the end of the day, an SAT, ACT, which you don't need that for college, I think, coming up in 2024. Um, but a lot of these TSI courses and everything that we're going to do, they're going to be tested in a computer. So yeah. we cannot fight that. And I need to prepare my babies to be able to be scholars, to be able to do that um, in a few years. And, and we can't fight that. So um, it's worked really well with us for us. For our students. You know, we talked about the huge generational change of COVID and then, you know, the influx and, you know, the non-stopping increase in technology and the more data streams that you guys have. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the job's harder, no? <laughs> it seems like it would be harder, but uh, do you feel like you're also producing better students, better teachers? Uh, well, what's the job like for you right now, both of you guys? I I'm going to answer that. I think any change is hard. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why maybe the, the ideology of it's harder right now. We're going through a lot. We certainly are, but I think we are in that cusp of change, like he was just saying, from generation to generation, for, you know, um, from era to era. And you're absolutely right. When it comes to math, you go, my, my daughter wants to study engineering. I'm married to an engineer. They love math, so it's like I'm listening to this, and it's like I'm listening at my dinner table. Um, 
it's physics has always been physics. And the way you think about, you know, uh, mathematically how you plan for things, that doesn't change. But now we have technology to get us there faster, to get us there to learn. And, and I think that's, as educators, is just trying to teach, especially a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year old, eleven year old, how technology is going to lead them the right path, and not let them get into, you know, the wrong path because you certainly can, and not everybody has parents that are going to guide them along the way, but we have to teach them and we have to do it, and we certainly do, and we take a lot of pride in that. So I think that is what's difficult is having everybody on board along the same path, uh, you know, to the same end, which is basically academic success. But now we have to add the internet as part of our social education, you know, to see what's, what's how they should be acting and not acting. And then socially, like, you should, like he's saying, teenagers don't talk anymore, so they don't date. There's no, <laughs> nobody, you know, it's, it's not happening. So, yeah. um, you know, and we have to teach that too in an elementary school. So. It's just the change that, that's, that's like new pair of shoes. It's, it's uncomfortable. And I think for me, um, I've always been different since I was little. So um, I think, I'll, you know, my job's easier now in, in reality. I mean, I'm, I'm fairly ambitious and I've pushed myself hard since I was very young. So um, people may not agree that, you know, it's easy. But I've love my job I really enjoy what I do and I think it's actually like with COVID and everything it's actually given me because I can remember so many teachers that had really no compassion no you know it's just they're very rigid and it's given me the opportunity to show flexibility and compassion to my students so mm -hmm. that when they get into the classroom and they have you know one of the examples I always give them is a third grader coming to school late Last time I checked, they can't grab the keys and leave on time, right? I mean, yeah. and they and they get in trouble and they, and they miss recess and and it's like that's on mom and dad, you know. Talk to the mom and dad, and at the end of the day, like you know, sometimes those the teacher might be the only person that child has that's really positive and you know uplifting to them, and so I try to model that with the students. And of course, as far as technology, um, one of my professors had done his dissertation back with the punch cards <laughs> and even before that by hand and he had stacks of notebooks with all the formulas I have a program I put all the numbers in like it generates it I'm done um, much much easier with everything we have mm -hmm. well we know there's lots of change and I want to thank you guys for mm -hmm. uh, coming by and talking to us and giving us uh, some of your time if anybody at home wants more information on what either Dr. Perry Dr. Vela does or uh, more information in general on becoming a teacher, just visit our links included on the website. And uh, with that, I'm Garrett Hoddle with Podcast Architects. Thank you. Mm -hmm.